back to Michigan from Utah, and we're discussing and trying to get some notes down about our uh, Italian trek, more Italian trek, which we completed last year. We want to talk a little bit about equipment and stuff that we use. We'll share comments back and forth as we go. The audio on this segment is less than desirable, so please, once again, pretend you're back in 1846 where there's not high-quality sound systems. Over the years, we've seen very different versions of packs that uh, supposedly applied to the battalion, all of which were purported to be the correct uh, backpack for the 1846 battalion. A particular uh, fondness to a lot of the reenactors is a wooden frame backpack that was appropriate for the 1812 war, but for being shipped to the frontier at Fort Leavenworth for use on the frontier, having that much wood and that much empty space when they packed them and, and sent them to the frontier just didn't seem reasonable to me. So I again contacted Steve Alley at Fort Leavenworth on some other things, including the tent work, uh, the cooking equipment, and, and, the, and the backpacks, and, and, and appealed to him to give us a little bit of help on that since we were quite confused having seen four different styles, uh, none of which really seemed correct from what I had been able to find out. Steve went back into the Quartermaster General's specifications and went a little bit further, far above and beyond Call of Duty, in my opinion, and got back into the actual orderings uh, for equipment and supplies uh, from the Quartermaster's records at that time. And Steve compared the known designs that were available and in use at the time to the amount of supplies ordered uh, and the amount of finished products that were delivered to the quartermaster. And he came up with a, uh, a different design than we had seen before, basically a soft pack with a back flap to hold a, a blanket, leather straps on top to hold a blanket or a raincoat. And basically the, the personal item area was about 12 by 12 inches and 3 inches thick. So basically a three-inch thick haversack. Uh, all of this was tarred uh, with black paint to make it waterproof, and uh, closures were, were leather straps with, with buckled. So uh, we ordered 10 packs from Steve Alley with the intent that we would be able to outfit 10 people at, uh, each day, uh, which we called that group Cook's Cadre, if we had people that wanted to do that. And we would make an authentic experience available for them by providing backpacks, uh, fake muskets, leather belt, white buff leather belts, such as the battalion had. They would be able to sleep overnight in period authentic tents, cook with period authentic equipment, and uh, using period authentic foods. So that was when people started, again, indicating they wanted to go with us and having heard the kind of interest that went with the 97 wagon train to Salt Lake City. We thought we should be prepared for that kind of eventuality. And we thought it might be a way to help raise some funds for what we were doing. Of course, it turned out that it was rarely used, uh, although we did use it. Uh, we, we rarely had anybody who was willing to camp that style, but we did use it in our demonstrations, and, and we're glad to have those products. Uh, anyway, Steve had uh, apparently just about the same time made an effort to make these new packs as well available commercially through Jarnigan's, but we were provided our packs directly through the uh, reenactors group there at uh, Fort Leavenworth at a discount for our group. Uh, and again, we, we have many reasons to be grateful to Steve Alley and the reenactors group out of Fort Leavenworth, and we wish to mention their, their graciousness and kindness to us. Of course, you have to have blankets which set me off on another uh, research project uh, to see if we could get this right. And uh, fortunately, just about the same time as we started researching it, uh, a book became available 
which I don't have in front of me right now, but basically it's a um, uh, trade blankets uh, were researched, uh, primarily Hudson Bay blankets, but also other manufacturers of the time period uh, from the 1700s up to the 1800s and uh, even the 1900s, uh, representing the uh, different trade blankets, point blankets, how many points would be available, how they were manufactured, where they were manufactured, uh, and fascinating reading, which uh, the battalion had purchased some of their blankets at Peter Sarpy's Trader's Post, uh, Trader's Point, um, and so consequently there was some confusion for future uh, research. Somebody could uh, go track down the orders from Peter Sarpy to the American Fur Company for what kind of blankets and what colors. Uh, we know that uh, deep red vermilion blankets were given sometimes to Indian chiefs and others would have been available at times uh, to other people uh, because the battalion basically claimed that they bought out all the stock at Peter Sarby's. Uh, so if there were blankets of any kind, trade blankets of any kind there, uh, they would have been purchased up by the, by the battalion. Um, when they got to Fort Leavenworth, the battalion would have been issued two blankets according to Steve Alley. And their group had, about a decade earlier, back in the 1990s, um, had actually gone out and done the research to find the kind of heft and nap and, and weave on these kinds of blankets uh, to find out, again, what the specifications were from the quartermaster's books. And they actually contracted to have a, a run made by one of the wool manufacturers, uh, excuse me, one of the weaving uh, manufacturers to produce and, and make a run of period authentic uh, blankets. Um, we had bought a few blankets online uh, because they're not currently available. We'd bought a few blankets um, that were Hudson Bay style. Uh, we had gone to uh, secondhand stores and, and tried to find some wool blankets that uh, approximated the size even though they weren't period correct or, or point blankets. Uh, enough to outfit these these ten packs and the, the ten people that we envisioned outfitting. So we had ten blankets, but uh, uh, recognizing that most of them were not correct, but again, the battalion would have used what was available to them. Um, when we got to Fort Leavenworth in, in uh, late July and early August, uh, we met with Steve Alley and, and some of the guys, and after one of the events that we held jointly with them, uh, Steve called us back into the hallway by his office. He said, we have something for you. Come with me, said he. And uh, we walked into the hallway, and here was a pile of blankets lying on the ground. And uh, Steve picks one up, puts it in, said, hold out your arms. He put it in my arms. And it's a lovely white wool blanket with a broad black strap and eat, uh, stripe at both ends, uh, such as would have been appropriate for the U.S. Army at that time and roughly two-and-a-half, three-point blanket with the uh, points embedded in the fabric uh, the way they would have been. So these were the leftovers or uh, cast-offs that the uh, uh, group there at Fort Leavenworth uh, had. And uh, so Steve put a blanket in my arm, which just astonished me because I knew they were not available currently. And uh, I started to stammer out a thank you. He said, hush. And he picked up a second blanket and put that in my arms. And uh, 
I'm completely astonished. The blankets, when they were manufactured, were on the order of $350. And since they're not available now, I, I had easily would sell for 500 each. Well, Steve proceeded to pick up a third, a fourth, and a fifth blanket, placing them in my arms. And of course, at that point, I'm just completely speechless and quite, uh, quite touched at their graciousness and their kindness towards us. Uh, uh, so those five blankets are, are in our possession and uh, will probably remain so, although we uh, would consider perhaps uh, making one available to uh, one of the museums at the appropriate time uh, on a loan from our group. What else we needed to outfit? Uh, the Mormon Battalion Association in Utah had previously committed that they would provide enough uh, white buff belts and buckles and the other uh, accoutrements uh, uh, by purchase from uh, Cap Cressup out in California to uh, provide enough gear for 10 people to be outfitted. And they were gracious enough to come through with that. Um, so we had the fake muskets, we had the uh, uh, buff belts, and, and those kinds of pieces of equipment. Um, that left us with canteens. Um, uh, there's been an ongoing discussion about what kind of canteen, similar to what kind of pack they had. Uh, a lot of people have settled upon the wooden canteen. Again, that was appropriate for the War of 1812, but... Uh, Steve Alley, again, had assured us that at that time, a um, canteen, uh, a metal canteen uh, embossed with U.S. for the United States had been manufactured and was the correct canteen, which would have been issued to the Mormon battalion uh, at Fort Leavenworth. Uh, the basis for his uh, assurance on that, I, I don't know other than... Uh, He's Steve Alley, <laughs> and uh, Steve is uh, recognized as, uh, as having resources of information and, uh, uh, that most of us just can't get access to. So I'll, I'll take it his, on his assertion until someone proves it differently. Um, in our case, I had purchased one of these correct canteens for my own use, uh, but uh, they're currently selling for on the order of $65, $75 each, and uh, that just was prohibitive in our budget since they would not be used that frequently. What we did find, though, again, through uh, Jarnigan or one of the uh, uh, supply companies was a collection of dented and uh, abused uh, canteens that would not sell for full price but were selling for about $20 a whack. And uh, we were able to scrounge 10 of those for our use. Let's see, what else? We had uh, haversacks. Uh, a lady, a volunteer out in Kansas, was kind enough to make a number of haversacks for us, uh, which we then sewed the buttons onto. So they were period-appropriate uh, three, three-point uh, and three-button haversacks, roughly a, a foot square each. Uh, one thing I will mention at this point, of, of all the equipment, um, the haversacks for the battalion would have... Uh, not lasted very long. A fairly uh, cheap linen cotton canvas, um, putting your food in it, uh, putting your various items in it. Uh, in mine, uh, carrying as little as I carried in my haversack, uh, it was in pretty ragged shape by the time we got to Santa Fe. Denny patched it up and, and uh, it made it all the way to California, but just by the skin of its teeth. Uh, so I think haversacks were one of those things that either got replaced. Uh, 
from, through the settlers or through the military or people made their own. Just just further comment on Cap Crescent. Cap Crescent is a reenactor and scout leader out in Cap, Southern California. Uh, Cap, back in 1997, when they did a big uh, Mormon Battalion commemoration in Southern California, um, found a supplier to produce uh, um, fake Charlevay, Charleville uh, muskets, uh, the French Charleville. Uh, this group is out of Spain, and they make these uh, reproduction muskets that are not the correct size, not the correct weight, but, uh, you know, from 25, 30 feet away, unless you really knew what you were looking at, are, are indistinguishable. Uh, they're toy guns, but uh, he, Cap apparently had about 250 youth outfitted with these white buff belts um, and these muskets, uh, including a, a bayonet, uh, and so uh, they look pretty good. Uh, they look reasonable, and, and uh, uh, for roughly $250 per set of belts and musket and uh, um, uh, a bayonet, uh, you could outfit a person with, with that kind of stuff. So the investment by the Mormon Battalion Association uh, approximated uh, $3,000, pretty close, to, to get that material to us. And we're grateful to them for the opportunity to, to have that equipment available. Okay, so the men are basically outfitted. When we started doing the River of Time uh, events in Michigan, uh, we slowly collected a few pieces of equipment that we've been using. Uh, we purchased a, a semi-correct period tent. Uh, it was too big and not made correctly, but uh, that's been our primary tent in our camp for a number of years. But since we wanted to have some degree of authenticity for what we were doing, uh, we got in contact with Mr. Steve Alley, a director and curator at the Frontier Army Museum at Fort Leavenworth, and uh, asked him to give us a little bit of uh, recommendations and give us a little bit of uh, technical advice. Uh, Steve's group of reenactors there at Fort Leavenworth, in fact, produced tents and other equipment that uh, is period correct for the Mexican War period. And uh, so we purchased two tents. Uh, Steve has access to the original quartermaster's uh, specifications at the beginning of the Civil War, most of which apply to the uh, Mexican War period as well. So we have two tents that we purchased to uh, outfit uh, 10 people, to allow to camp 10 people. Those tents at that time were structured and designed to hold five people each, five adult males. Of course, when the battalion got to the Rio Grande River, Colonel Cook uh, modified the tents somewhat so that nine people could fit in them, but we'll deal with that later as well. Now, these tents are hand-sewn. The only significant way in which they differ from the original is that the canvas material uh, was not made from hemp. Uh, Steve is even trying to improve on that. He's apparently found a source of hemp canvas from China that uh, he's going to start making his new tents out of after he gives it a little bit of experimentation. Um, a few comments about the efficiency of the tents as we had them. Very good. They were very tight. They didn't leak on us. We got drenched a couple times while the tents were up and no no significant infiltration of water through the tents or the seams themselves. At uh, Rancho Golondrinas, we, we had a very strong rain overnight. No problem with the tents whatsoever. Our tents never really had to withstand the strong uh, winds. We just Never had them up at a time when we, we had a really severe storm, so we really can't comment on those. Denny wants me to mention uh, in here that uh, Maurice Gubler, 
a battalion descendant in California, apparently worked with scouts for a number of years, had some canvas tents made by uh, Panther tents. Uh, they were more correctly Civil War period tents, larger A-frame tent, uh, and a couple of small ones. Anyway, he donated the large tents to us and asked us to use one of the small tents so that he could say it had been used on the battalion trek, and we were happy to do that. So some of those larger tents now are uh, included with the gear that we have back here. They came in very helpful at times when we were a little larger area and groups with us. As far as the stakes go for the tents, uh, we knew that we were going to be in areas with a lot of rock, and, and so the official tent pegs for those tents at that time were made out of two-inch square oak, about 18 inches long, and uh, tapered to pound into the ground with a wooden mallet. We knew those wouldn't last, so Denny uh, scrounged up found a group at the Midland Historical Society that do blacksmithing, and she appealed to them, and they were kind enough to make us most of our iron ironwork that we needed. We have a tripod that was built for us by one of our young men, uh, Brad Jones, for cooking off of the tent pegs, tent stakes, holders for our flags, and what else do we have made? Candle uh, lantern holders, uh, three, three sets each for those things. Uh, most of the things that we had were in threes because we had uh, enough tents and equipment to outfit uh, three tents. One other thing, uh, of course, no no American army camp would be appropriate without its own flag. Again, resorting to our good friend Steve Alley, we, we inquired uh, what a flag would look like. Would it have, uh, what would it be like? Would it have the gold fringe to it? Uh, how big would it be? And Steve came back and said, since the battalion was not its a regiment-sized group. It wouldn't have its own regimental flag, but of course it would carry a flag, so we inquired about that. Uh, it might have been silk. It might have been cotton. Uh, it's a little bit unsure on that, but uh, one thing they do know is that the flags of the time uh, were not produced with white stars. Uh, they had the 13 red and white stripes. They had the blue field, but no stars were placed on the flags. The reason being, states were being added so quickly that to make any large order of flags uh, would have been not very effective. So basically, the flags were given out with just a plain blue field. Each group would then be provided with a small can of silver paint, and they would paint on the requisite number of stars. Uh, according to Steve, there was no official pattern uh, that was required to be used, and each group would have come up with their own pattern of stars. Uh, well, we made mention of this in our board of directors meeting one night. Uh, Bob Tingey uh, offered to be responsible to provide the flag for us, and uh, which he did. He went out and ordered a couple cotton flags uh, with just a plain blue field. And, and when he arrived, uh, about the time we were in the area of Amazonia, Missouri, we actually spent a couple evenings painting the flag and putting on the right number of stars on both sides of the, of the blue field. So that was kind of fun. And then we put it on a a wooden, uh, wooden pole and, and lashed it up uh, uh, with some white cordage and, uh, and had our own little flag, which we'd post uh, in one of our flag holders at every camp that we, we made with the, with the period equipment and tent. As far as equipment goes, again, the other major piece of equipment as far as the cooking goes uh, was made for us by Leland Smith of Midland, Michigan. Denny designed more or less a uh, what we would normally call a scout patrol food box or a kitchen 
which had fold out uh, and chain chained up uh, side sidebars, which formed then a, a table when it folded down. Uh, the entire patrol food box, if you will, stood on four legs that would slide into uh, receivers on the sides of the food box. Heavier than all get out, but uh, you know, uh, cord uh, rope on the on the ends of all these boxes by which they would be lifted and moved from one place to another. Uh, but the food box stood up on legs, and uh, people could then uh, move up to the food box uh, uh, shelves and, and, and do cutting and mixing and, and whatever things they needed to. Uh, it's a little bit on the flimsy side with the legs, but uh, it worked okay. Okay, this is Denny. It's September Oops, no it's not. It's July 3rd, 2009, and I wanted to have a chance to say some wonderful things about the camp kitchen because that was one of my favorite things of the whole trip. And yes, it was flimsy, but that was mostly my fault because when I was sent to the store to get the lumber, I got a thinner piece of plywood than Leland expected me to get. So it was, it didn't look very sturdy, but it did hold up for the amount of time that we used it. And he built the shelf levels custom to how we wanted it according to the types of containers that we had accumulated. And so everything in the kitchen was in authentic containers or muslin bags. And we had, I was able to get a bunch of tins from the dollar store and took them out in our fire pit at home and burned them several times in the fire on the coals and then would scrape them off with steel wool and put them back in until they were all antique looking and then we stenciled the name of the ingredient that was inside it on the outside with white stencils and paint. So it really did look authentic and fun when you opened it. We went to a lot of yard sales, antique shows, Kind of things and gathered up old odd looking bottles with corks and when I was down in Florida I went to a Goodwill store and they had a little tiny miniature rack of spice that had little simple simple bottles with screw-on lids that looked very old and authentic so we bought those and that's where we put our little spices in so it had an odd assortment of bottles and containers, tins and muslin bags, but it was very fun when you opened it up and you could do whatever you needed to. We had, as far as utensils go, we had an old, old um, cast iron rusted spoon that we thought was perfect for Dr. Sanderson's rusty spoon. We had wooden mallets and spoons for stirring and cooking, an old-fashioned rolling pin, and an old muffin biscuit cutter, a really, really old-fashioned, ah, what do you make pies, pastry blender. So it was a fun camp kitchen. The first time we put it to the test was in Missouri. We had a group that was coming with Hallmark Magazine to have dinner with us, and I was very nervous because we had really done a full dinner with the kitchen and nothing else besides our cook box before. And the location that we were camping that evening that they were supposed to join us was just out in the middle of the prairie grass. It was called Forney Lake, and it was just a little turnoff in the, a dirt road. And all we needed to cook a wonderful, wonderful dinner was the food box that Phil had made us with all of our cooking um, stuff in it, our, our pans and kettles and Dutch oven, and our cook stove and our water. We had the food, of course, that had to be refrigerated, but with those three items, we handled our meals beautifully. And so after that, I was never, ever worried about wherever we went. They could stick me in the middle of the desert, and I would be fine. I could cook whatever I wanted with it. It was really fun. And that was a real treat to me whenever they'd stop the truck, and I'd ask them to get the kitchen off, and they would do that for me, because that was one of my favorite parts. Another thing that was especially fun for me was 
week after Christmas, starting Christmas Day. We had a family from Palo Alto, California come and spend some time with us. They signed up to come on the trek as Cook's Cadre, so they were just able to use all of the equipment and the gear that we had gathered and spent so much time preparing. And it was especially fun to watch them with the camp kitchen and the cook boxes and the rations that we gave them. They had about four or five young women. The youngest was eight. The oldest was, I think, 24. The grandma was 79 years old, and her eyes lit up when she saw those Dutch ovens and those camp kettles and the kitchen, and she just had a ball cooking with all that equipment. And it was really fun to watch them use the use the kitchen. The young girls, I just told them, I have all these ingredients. You can choose what you'd like to make. Just experiment with whatever you'd like, and they had a good time doing that. Sunday morning, Grandma made us all sweet rolls for Mariah's birthday. It was her birthday that Sunday, so that was fun. One of the funniest things was when I gave them the menu for succotash, and as part of that menu item, you're supposed to have salt pork, which is very, very fatty bacon. It's 90% fat, just a tiny bit of bacon. And so they, the kids, they were all teenagers, most of them, it kind of looked at me funny when I told them what we, we were going to have for dinner, what was on the menu that night, and especially when I handed them the beans and the salt pork and the onions and things like that. But that night, when they ate it, they all came up to me and said, Sister Henson, this is so good. And so I just had to smile because I knew if you were hungry enough, anything tasted pretty good. But the really funny part of that story is the day afterwards, we found out that the grandma had refused to put any of the salt pork fat in the pot. And so <laughs> that's what really gave it the flavor and made it taste good. So they must have really been starving kids because they ate it without any salt pork fat in it to give it any flavoring. I don't know if they could even find any meat in the whole pot. Another funny thing was about the cooking utensils, the plates and the tin cups. And all of the tinware, whenever we used them, because they rusted so quickly, we had to, um, each time we used them, we had to dry them off and then rub them down with a light coating of shortening to keep them from rusting right away. And so about the second day on our trip with the Wilson family, there were 10 of them. I noticed that they were only using one bowl per couple of people. And I said, oh, you guys, I'm sorry. Did you not know that we have enough plates for everyone? And the kids kind of looked at me sheepishly, and the mom, she said, We've decided we don't want to clean them. We're just going to share. <laughs> They're too much work. And so that was pretty funny. They were a lot of work and um, didn't take any time at all for them to start to rest. So what does that say about the original battalion? I imagine the original battalion had quite rusty gear. I don't know. I don't know if they took care of them that way. <laughs>